Hey, so good to see you guys. Uh, actually, in this new year, we've actually started this new sermon series called School of Prayer. And uh, it actually coincides with every new year, we start the year with a 21-day fast. And it's an introduction and an invitation for our church community uh, to pray and fast. And so we actually had a worship night this past Friday night. Uh, we have over 115 people, I believe, signed up for this fast. And it actually ends tomorrow, uh, which is pretty significant. And really, the whole idea behind it, and I talked about this a couple of weeks ago, is that for many of us, whatever your religious perspective persuasion might be, whatever. You might even identify as someone who's an atheist or an agnostic, someone who doesn't even believe in faith, but you came today because you heard there's nice people around. You know, uh, either way, uh, whatever your disposition might be, many of us really function as functional atheists. We might say one thing that we believe or say that we ascribe to a certain kind of faith, um, belief, or proposition, but yet, many of us, functionally, we act like atheists, and oftentimes, our prayer lives are actually indicative of what that looks like, because fundamentally, here's what prayer is. Prayer is actually having this connection with the divine God and actually being able to communicate, to listen, to converse. And this is what prayer is. And so what we've been kind of uh, exploring over these last uh, couple weeks, or what we will be exploring over these next few weeks, is this idea of prayer and the school of prayer, looking specifically at the life of Jesus and how he prays and how he approaches prayer. Now, in the passage that was read earlier, it's this passage where most of it, as Karin was reading, many of you were probably like, oh, this is actually a passage about Jesus healing someone of leprosy, and then crowds, throngs of people begin to crowd around because Jesus has healed someone. And and of course, what we know is that the rumors of Jesus that would spread far and wide, even non-Christian historians would write about Jesus, this miracle worker like Josephus would write about this. So Jesus already had this reputation of being this incredible miracle worker. Now, if you could imagine, uh, back in those days, of course, medical advancement and information was not nearly as robust as it is today. Could you imagine, I mean, this skill that Jesus has to heal people? I mean, he's even known, and a couple weeks ago, we examined this miracle where he raises the dead. I mean, could you imagine how marketable this skill is, right? Like, check out this Jesus fellow, He can just say a word and lepers get healed. He can just touch people. Someone can just touch the hem of his cloak, which we see in another healing episode. Like Jesus is a bona fide rock star. Uh, I I mean, even if you were to think, even in a room like this, if if somebody heard that there was this miracle worker, healer type of person, uh, I mean, if you imagine people, even if you yourself is not sick, you probably know someone who's sick, maybe someone with a physical infirmity. Jesus was also known as someone, right, who would cast out demons. So those who were either um, kind of caught up in an impure spirit or... Uh, like in today's world, like they had some severe mental health conditions, right? Where um, sometimes it feel it seems like someone's not um, fully present. Uh, I mean, could you imagine? Like, like I'm thinking, like each of us have family members or friends. Like we would probably be thinking, ah, Jesus, wow, this reputation. Um, could you really talk to my uncle? <laughs> like, can I can I bring my uncle to to speak to you or to be met by you? Like, that's how popular Jesus was. So there's like throngs of this, right? Um, A few years ago, and I know um, it sounds kind of weird, but I was, the largest gathering that I've ever spoken to, like I've ever preached to, was this gathering of about 6,000 people. And I realized, I I was hesitating, should I share this story? I mean, to be humble brag kind of thing. And it it was just, basically, it was like this small little brush up for me of like this very, very little microcosm of celebrity, a little bit, right? So there's, I speak at this gathering, there's 6,000 people there, uh, and it went really well. <laughs> and um, anyhow, 
so anyhow, it goes really well. And so at this gathering, though, like, there's people, like, all over the place just talking to me. And, like, like Drew, oh, my goodness. That, and I'm like, oh, yeah, hey, man, hey, what's, what's up? You know, and, I, but I don't, I don't know some of these people. And so people are coming to me and talking to me. So I make my way. I'm in Orlando. And even at the airport, um, like, people are coming and stopping me. Hey, Drew, oh, my goodness, what heard you say? And I was like, oh, oh, praise God, you know. Like, but it, it was just this... And so there was, a, 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 like, this pressure on me to be on, to be available to everyone. And so as a result, like, I mean, I just remember being so exhausted. And finally, like, I sit in my chair in the, I get on the airplane, uh, and I, I finally, I sit in my chair, and I'm just like, I'm ready to put my earphones in. And this guy who's sitting right next to me, he's like, Drew, right? And I was like, oh, <laughs> yes, yes, that's me, you know? And, but it was just this one moment and I, I just realized, like, that feeling of being discombobulated, kind of, like, crowded around and in a very small sliver of that I experienced in this, this one moment, in this one trip, I realized for, for Jesus, I mean, do you ma- can you imagine all the demands? And what's crazy about these demands is they're, they're actually good demands. It's not like we're like, hey, Jesus, you know, like, he, he does some, like, silly trick that doesn't really help mankind. It's like a felt need for the world around him, for people around him, whether they're mental needs, spiritual needs, physical needs. And yet, here's what the story tells us. Look at what happens, what it says at the very end, and this is the example that we're going to look at. It says this. It says, Jesus often withdrew to lonely places, and he prayed. He often withdrew. In other words, there was a rhythm where Jesus... He knew that the priority for his life, even though he's fully man and fully God, he's giving this very robust offering to the world. He knows that the biggest priority is to to withdraw and to pray. Now, that is stunning. Because there's a part of me, honestly, I grew up in this hyper-achievement-oriented kind of philosophy. Some of it's from my immigrant background, right? Um, I was just sharing in the first service how I remember when I turned 34 years old, last year, and no, I'm just kidding, it was <laughs> a little older now, but uh, I remember when I, I turned 34 years old, though, I remember, I, I, like, this thought came to mind, I'm like, you know, by the time Jesus was 33, he died, resurrected, and saved the world. Drew, what are you doing with your life, you know, like, <laughs> but I, I, like, that was kind of the mentality that I had, it was so achievement-oriented, so, like, you've got to get things done, being hyper kind of like, you know, and I look at Jesus' life and I'm like, Jesus, if this is, this is the marketable skill you have, you need to leverage that. Some of you business thinkers here are like, that's true. Jesus could, wow, to monetize that skill of healing would be pretty amazing. And there's a part of me like, Jesus, this is a good thing. You should continue doing this. And yet, even with such a good, profound, felt need that it serves in healing others, Jesus takes the time to prioritize withdrawing to pray. Now, in many ways, that's counterintuitive. But the reality is, us living in New York City, which is hyper-achievement-oriented, get things done, especially with technology, you and I feel this same pressure, don't we? 
to be on all the time, to be available 24-7. I was reading this article in the New York Times on mindfulness, which again is maybe doesn't come from Christian underpinnings in terms of the way that this uh, article was written. But nonetheless, the principles are the same. Check out this quote that comes from that article. It's from Janice Martirano. She says, we are encouraged in the workplace to be attached to an array of technology wizardry 24-7. Anyone know what I'm talking about? (laughs) Even when you have your vacation responder on, uh, right, your boss or your employer is like, oh, but you're going to be checking email anyways, right? Uh, you know what I'm talking about? Um, the information we're being bombarded with can be anxiety-producing, and it can create a sense of disconnection that can overwhelm us in our personal and professional lives. Anyone experienced that before? Anyone know what I'm talking about? How technology, in a weird way, it's connected us like never before, and all of the benefits of technology that people espouse. I'll talk about how the, the increased amount of connectivity. And yet, research has also shown that same connectivity is also what is the cause for increased anxiety and mental health issues. Isn't that fascinating what happens? This sense of trying to be connected all the time. Now, as a confession, I just want you to know, like, I am the most active person on our Hope Church NYC Slack channel for our staff. I just want you to know that. just want you to know that I'm probably the most wired, the most connected, et cetera, et cetera. That's a confession of mine because, again, by the age of 34, I was trying to compare myself to Jesus and trying to save the world more than Jesus did. Like, that's just in me. Like, this need to keep achieving and doing And yet, Jesus, he actually withdraws. Now, again, not even from Christian perspectives, we might even learn this need and this necessity because research has actually shown how how meaningful it is to withdraw from work. Uh, There's actually a book by Cal Newport. Uh, It's a phenomenal work. It's called Deep Work. And look at the tagline for this book. It's called Rules for Focused Success in a Distracted World. And Cal Newport, what he outlines is he outlines with research... Uh, and stories about how each of us actually need focused attention whenever it comes to creating deep and meaningful work. So he outlines kind of throughout history these moments where actually the time to restore and to concentrate is needed. But in our hyper-connected world today, we're often prone to putting together shallow work. Now, here's the thing. If I were to ask anyone in this room, like, how many of us are committed to deep work as opposed to shallow work, right? I believe everyone here would be like, yep, deep work. It's me, right? Unless you're from Los Angeles. I'm just kidding. Uh, (laughs) I use that joke for service. I thought I'd use it again in a second. Uh, Right? Like, all of us would say, yeah, deep work. That's what I'm all about. And one of the things he outlines is how there needs to be an intentionality then around how we carve out our time and our focused energy. Check out this quote. Look at what he says. He says, if you keep interrupting your evening to check and respond to email or put aside a few hours after dinner to catch up on an approaching deadline, you're robbing your directed attention centers of the uninterrupted rest they need for restoration. I mean, isn't this the story of many of us? We try to get things done. We push forward a little bit more. Even if these work dashes consume only a small amount of time, they prevent you from reaching the levels of deeper relaxation in which attention restoration can occur. Only the confidence that you've done, you're done with work until the next day can convince your brain to downshift to the level where it can begin to recharge for the next day to follow. Put another way, trying to squeeze a little more work 
Out of your evenings might reduce your effectiveness the next day enough that you end up getting less done than if you had instead respected a shutdown. Anyone ever experienced that before? Right, you try to get a little bit more work done. And you think, oh, this will be better. Then I'll be better prepped for tomorrow. But because you, you pushed yourself a little bit too hard, you end up not getting enough sleep. And so you're groggy the next morning. In fact, you probably got a little sick because you didn't get enough sleep. Oh, and you forgot to eat as well. And as a result of that, the next day ends up being shot. Because why? You're now uh, getting sick. You're tired. You're irritable. Moreover, the team experiences you this way and then just tells you to go home. Anyone ever experienced that before? I know that that's been common for me at different times. This moment where I think, oh, I'll just get a little bit more done. And what what Newport outlines is how we actually need undivided focus and rest so that we can recharge, so that we can give the best of our mind and our think space to creativity and work. Uh, Here's what else he says about boredom. Check this out. He says, to simply wait and be bored has become a novel experience in modern life, but from the perspective of concentration training, it's incredibly valuable. Isn't that something? And yet, it's one of the things that's hardest for us, just to stop, to find solitude. And yet, this is what Jesus does. It's a priority for Jesus. Uh, You know what's interesting is that um, in the history of the church, right, Jesus dies and resurrects from the grave. In the early centuries, the Christian movement starts and it begins to spread, even as a persecuted minority. And here's what ends up happening, because even in religious settings, here's what happens, right? Uh, In any kind of industry, things can get sullied a little bit, right? So even in this thing we call church and building church, and I I remember, um, and I'm going to give you a little bit of a kind of a look into the underbelly of like church organization. And uh, when I, when, before we planted Hope Church, the first Hope Church in Astoria, Midtown started in 2014, 15, and then Hope Astoria started in 2012. And I would go to these trainings uh, about how to start a church and stuff. And in many ways, a lot of the practices were very similar to if you were going to like an entrepreneurship boot camp or something on how to scale and multiply and things like that. So I remember one of the early books that uh, my coach gave me was this book on how to plant fast-growing churches. And so I read this book, and one of the, the, the key principle of this book was um, if you want your church to grow, it needs to be bigger than 200 people after three years. Right? Like, so that was, and, you know, there were no scriptural references or it was just that's just what the data shows so I remember just thinking okay wow we need to get 200 we need it like and and so I'm thinking about like all the ways that you know um, our church can grow and here's what ends up happening right so I'm like okay our church can grow if we do these kinds of things maybe if we have uh, free ice cream on baptism Sundays <laughs> just, we did that one time and uh <laughs> Okay, we do that all the time now. But nonetheless, like, right, like there's, it was just like these little gimmicky things, and it was, it was kind of like, oh, like, oh, well, if, you know, we got to build momentum this way and that way. And then here's what inevitably, inevitably happens, right? Then it's, it's, it's like, oh, our ch- that church grew really fast over there. Our, I think our church needs to be cooler than that church. How do we make our church cooler than that? I, I really like their website. Who made their website? Right? Like, this is what happens, right? So now, all of a sudden, 
all of kind of this thing, which was about following Jesus and loving him and loving people, like it becomes caught up in kind of all these different practices of, of moving towards things. Now, that same experience, like you could imagine in the early church, especially as Christianity starts to become a thing, if you could imagine. Now, as Christianity becomes a thing, later on in 313 AD, Christianity would become the, the rule of the land for the Roman Empire. But right before that, in around 270 AD, this movement begins in the early church. It's a movement of the Desert Fathers. The Desert Fathers were people who, they saw the excesses and the ways that the Christian movement was becoming sullied by the, the values of the world, the values of influence and power and money. And so what these Desert Fathers did is they left the church and went to Egypt, to the desert, why? So that they could pursue a more pure form of faith. And it was this pure form of faith where they would renounce riches and they would begin to pray and have their life be oriented around a life of prayer. The sayings of the Desert Fathers are these sayings from this tradition. This tradition has moved on so that today there are still monastic communities around the world, uh, Christian monks whose life is devoted to prayer and having prayer be the ultimate thing, where renounced the values of the world. Now, in many ways, this prophetic call for these desert fathers, the reasons why they did this was because they saw that the church was being sullied by all these different values, right? People could, would talk about being Christians all day long, but they had the same values for money, for growth, for power, for influence. And that's why these folks fled to the desert. Now, I remember in the midst of my own kind of church start journey, right, like, like, you know, like comparing myself to other churches and whatnot, I remember reading this book about the sayings of the Desert Fathers and reading about, again, this call to be restored to the original way, the original mandate of what it means to follow Jesus. And I remember coming across this quote from uh, Abba Moses. Check this out. This is what he says. He says, sit in thy cell and thy cell will teach thee all or will teach you everything. Sit in your cell. What is your cell? It's, your cell is your prayer cell. Sit in your prayer cell, and your prayer cell will teach you everything. I remember reading this and being just so struck. Because here's what I re- recall. I recall, like, oh, my goodness, there are so many voices I'm listening to right now. There's the voice and the noise of, like, comparing myself to others and seeing what this other church down the street is doing. And I just, I remember thinking about all the noise from these books that I was getting, which your church needs to break the 200 barrier. You know, like, and I just remember being so caught up in all of this. And I read this, this saying, just sit in your prayer cell and your cell will teach you everything. And in many ways, it was almost this corrective for me. There's so many voices right now. I just need to listen to the voice of God. The voice of Jesus, the one I signed up for in the first place. This saying became kind of like this controlling saying for me um, in those early years. But here's the thing, you know, we as a church, we've, we're recently we've gone through this reorganization right now where we've gone from one church to one local church here in Midtown to one church in three different locations. And honestly, like again, my natural bent is towards activity and getting stuff done. And so like I've got this whole punch list on this spreadsheet that I'm pouring over. And 
as, as I'm in this, I just want you to know, like, uh, like, I get caught up in so much activity and trying to punch through all these things. And there was this moment in the worship night this past Friday night where I just, I started tearing up a little bit because as we're singing about God, his faithfulness, his love, I realized it's so easy for my heart to stray and to start listening to these other voices, voices about success and achievement and getting stuff done and activity. And meanwhile, I'm sitting in this prayer gathering, this worship and prayer gathering, and I'm tearing up because I remember it's always been about that voice. The one voice. The one voice that was the reason why I signed up for this thing. Sit in the prayer cell, and your prayer cell will teach you everything. You know, this saying, though, is not new because, look, the early church, constantly this discipline of solitude and prayer was always present. That's why Jesus would prioritize this. In the midst of all the demands, he would prioritize this. All right, so check out this passage, these passages. Psalm 46, verse 10, be still and know that I am God. Stillness and solitude in the songbook is constantly talked about. Or check out Isaiah 30, verse 15. In repentance and rest is your salvation. In quietness and trust is your strength. See, the earliest Christians and followers of Jesus, this idea, this rhythm of rest, of solitude, of restoration, so that deep work can be done, this was always found in the ancient followers of Jesus. They knew that solitude and prayer and listening to the one voice above every voice was so important. Now, here's what's fascinating. Uh, I once read this quote, uh, Eugene Peterson, who was a pastor who passed away a few years ago. In his book, The Contemplative Pastor, he, he has this quote where he says this, you are busy because you are lazy. And I remember reading that, and I was like, that seems so counterintuitive uh, I don't know how true that is. Because honestly, I respect busy people. New York City is full of busy people. These are my people, busy people. New York City. But he says, you are busy because you are lazy. And he goes on to explain why and what he means by that. He says, you are busy. Um, you are lazy. You are busy and lazy. And the reason why you're you're um, Busy because you're lazy is because you are lazy about prioritizing the things that you need to prioritize. And as a result, you end up saying yes to everything instead of knowing exactly what you're supposed to say yes to. Right? You know how this goes, right? We think like, oh, I'm too busy. I'm too busy to pray. But wow, there's endless variety of options on Netflix right now. <laughs> right? Like, I mean, isn't this what happens? We fill our time with all sorts of things. We fill our time, and the question for me and for you is, will we move beyond that and begin to now prioritize hearing from this one voice? Um, you know, I talked to some teenagers today about kind of their rhythms, especially as it relates to social media, the pressure to be on social media, all the voices on social media that tell them they need to be look this way and look this pretty and have these kinds of friends and this good of time. And more of them that I've been talking to lately have talked about yet kind of the mental health toll that 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 takes and how now like the emphasis on actually having real person-to-person relationships and conversations, how much more meaningful and hopeful that is. But yet there's this inertia and this pressure. Now, it's not only teenagers, right? It's all of us. 
And the question is, will you begin to prioritize a life of prayer to have Jesus be at the center? Now, we have a course called Emotionally Healthy Spirituality, and in this course, we talk about different practices that we introduce about having Jesus be at the forefront, our prayer life be at the forefront, instead of the pressure of our friends, our family, social media, our bosses, our work, whatever it might be. What are some of these practices? Um, Three of the practices which we talk about, one is called the rule of life. A rule of life actually comes from monastic communities. A rule of life, and I I realize that might sound foreign to some of you. I know we've talked about it quite a bit here at our church and in our course. But crafting a rule of life, a rule of life is basically an intentional plan so that Jesus is at the center of everything that I do. So that above and beyond any other plans I make, my rule of life, the plan that I have is for these practices to be in place so that I can follow Jesus. So for instance, for myself, uh, part of my rule of life is I have a weekly Sabbath, which I'm going to talk about in a little bit, 24-hour period to disconnect, to stop, to rest, to delight, and to, to, to contemplate. I have a 24-hour Sabbath. In addition to that, I have one day a week on Tuesday that I don't schedule any meetings. It's basically just a think day. Now, I'm still, uh, I'm still available to respond to messages here and there, but most of the day I'm just sitting at my, at my desk and I'm just thinking, I'm journaling, I'm writing, I'm praying. Now, I, I realize some of you are like, well, Drew, okay, Mr. Professional Christian. Like, not many of us are also uh, vocationally professional Christians like you, <laughs> right? I, I realize some of you might have, sorry, I, mean, I, was, I don't know where that came from, that person. I, I don't know if any of you have ever talked to me that way. I don't think you have, but, <laughs> um, but I realize like some of us live very demanding jobs, right? In real estate, in law, in finance, whatever it might be as a teacher. But again, the reality is every single one of us Right? We can talk about crafting a rule of life, having an intentional plan about Jesus. Every single one of us have a rule of life somehow. We have some sort of path, pattern or rhythm of our lives. And the reality is, it gets filled with all sorts of stuff. It gets filled with your favorite TV show or endless scrolling or you know, whatever your habit of choice might be. The question is, how many of us, instead of being lazy about it, will actually focus and say, gosh, if I really say that I want Jesus to be at the center, then this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to carve out the space and the time to be still before the Lord and to pray before him. Now, that's the invitation for all of us to prioritize. And that's what crafting a rule of life is all about. If you'd like to know more, again, you could sign up for the course. It starts in February. Uh, one, a couple of other practices. I mentioned Sabbath keeping, which is uh, on the screen behind me, but also daily office A daily office is this practice. Many Christian communities um, have kind of grown up with this idea of a quiet time. Anyone heard that phrase before, a quiet time? The idea is basically a quiet time is when you get up really early. And the earlier you get up, like the godlier you are, right? And uh, and the idea is basically you, you you wake up and you get soaked up in this quiet time. It's a quiet time. You read scripture, you pray, maybe you journal a little bit, you write down some things. But has anyone ever had this experience, right? You, you, you get up, maybe you did your quiet time, right? And then when you're brushing your teeth 30 minutes later, you're like, I don't remember what I read. I don't, I don't even remember what I was praying for. I don't even know if I was awake. 
right? By, by the time you've gotten on the train, wrestled through traffic, gone to your desk, received that first notice on Monday morning from your boss, and by the time you've gotten into a little bit of a conflict with your coworker, right, by midday, you're not even a Christian anymore, right? You know what I'm talking about? Like, you've had that experience. Well, here's, here's a difference between a daily office and a quiet time. See, a daily office is stopping throughout the day, an office being your first work, stopping throughout the day to stop in silent, solitude and prayer, And so it's a practice that um, my wife and I, our family and I, that we talk about regularly because it's one of those things that hopefully keep me centered throughout the day. Um, So yes, I pause in the morning. Yes, but I also pause midday because I just need a reminder um, to pray and to be still before the Lord. And then there's another pause in the evening. Now, others and different monastic communities will pause for up to seven times a day, but for us, we try to focus on three times a day, just pausing to be still. I remember talking to someone who, he would, when he would go to his office just in midday, at the same time every day, he would just go into this stairwell just for 10 minutes, put a 10-minute timer on, and just during those 10 minutes, he would just sit and be still and pray. Maybe if it's even just be still and know that I am God. He's just praying, just carving out the time. Now, again, the reality is, some of you are like, well, that's, that's for someone like you. But the, again, all of our time gets filled up somehow. For someone like Jesus, it's important enough that he would actually move into solitude and prioritize it in the midst of all the good stuff he has going on. Why? Because there's nothing more important than this relationship, the relationship and the stillness and the solitude of being with God before you do anything for him. Um. Now, here's what I'd like to do just to kind of close our time together. And if you'd like to learn more about those practices or even put together a plan, I recommend that you take this course, Emotionally Healthy Spirituality, because in that course, we're going to talk about these specific rhythms to implement in our lives. Now, um, I want to start to close with this this final word on a, a practice called Centering Prayer. Now, Centering Prayer was actually just introduced uh, from another monastic community uh, a few decades ago. And Centering Prayer is this invitation towards silent prayer, but centering around a word. Now, centering around a word, the reason why is, have you ever had this experience when you're like, oh, yeah, deep work sounds good, but honestly, whenever I'm still, like, if if I'm like, I want to invite you to a moment of silence. Has this ever happened to you? You're just kind of like, okay, I'm going to be still. And then, like, inside your mind, you're like, Gosh, I wonder how long this is going to go. I, I wonder. Oh, it's Lunar New Year. I got to call my mom. But I don't know when I, I like the football games are today. I kind of want to watch those games. Gosh, I wonder if the Bills are going to beat the Bengals. I can't believe the Giants lost yesterday. Gosh, you know what? I'm kind of hungry right now. What are we going to eat for brunch? And anyone know what I'm talking about? Right? You have these moments of silence, and your mind just starts wandering all over the place. Sorry, maybe it's just me, guys. I don't know. (laughs) But centering prayer is this time to just be silent and to choose a word. And if you think about whatever you might be going through today, like, and maybe your word, I know for me, like I mentioned with this whole reorganization, the word is like just peace. Like God's got this, like peace. Or for me, it's been well. It is well. I'll use a phrase. And you just keep coming back to this phrase with whatever you have going on. Maybe some of you, like, um, whatever you might be going through, but maybe the word is love. Like, you just need to be reminded of love. Maybe the word is hope. 
Maybe the word is faith. You realize you just need some courage to walk in faith. Well, here's the invitation in center prayer is just to be still. And whenever my mind starts to wander, just to come back to your word. It's like Jesus is speaking these words over you. Now, a couple weeks ago, we did the practice of imagine Jesus sitting at a a bench, and what does he say to you? It's like this invitation. Like, all of these are just different prayer practices for each one of us, because at the end of the day, all of what we do as a church community, whether it's gathering here on Sundays, singing songs, gathering in groups, having courses, going on young adult retreats, whatever it is, it really is about us and Jesus, helping each one of us just have a meaningful encounter with Jesus. It's not about entertaining you. It's not about eating pizza once a month. Although all all of these things are really means towards, again, getting you and me to Jesus. And the reality is, like, your life with God should not be dependent on me or others or our staff team. Instead, what does it mean for you, yourself, to cultivate this living, breathing relationship with the God of the universe? who wants to know your name, who's intimately involved in your life and in mine, and who wants to speak a word over you, a word of love, a word of peace, a word of joy, a word of hope. So we're going to have a time of centering prayer. Now I realize we're going to do it for three minutes. Some of you, this is going to feel like an eternity. Others of you, this is going to feel like just a little drop in the bucket. But I just want us to be still. You can begin by, for me, I just like to have my feet on the ground firmly, way of just being present. I like to take a deep breath in and then a deep breath out to notice my own breathing as a way of even to focus on my breathing. And for you, choose a word right now a word that will center you that you can keep coming back to. You get distracted by brunch, by your friend, whatever it might be. Just keep coming back to your word. I'm going to give us three minutes and I'll bring us back together.
Amen. I'm going to invite us. Would you stand with me?